0: It all depends on what, how you view a Bible study and what it is that you're desirous of when you come to something like this. We could come to something like this and, and to be honest, really just want encouragement. You know, we just kind of want to slap on the back and get someone to grab pom-poms and go, Yay, yeah, you can do it, claim your whatever. Uh, and, and, but the problem is, is that, well, we're not always in a position where we should be doing that. And it's kind of like going to the doctor. Hey, who doesn't like to go to the doctor and actually the, the GP and have the GP just look and go, you're in perfect health now? I don't know about you, that used to be the thing I would hear a lot. I'm hearing that less as I get older. But then, if you are unwell, it is nice to go to the doctor and at least have him nail it, right? And not just go, well, you're sick. I'm like, yeah, got that far with it. That's why I'm here, you know. And, and the reason I say that is, is that some weeks we kind of get put on the grill. And We get put on the grill because what we really want is we want to be honest with ourselves about what really is truth. And we want to, I mean, the same way that, let's just say, with all due respect, Daniel, hypothetically, Manuel, comes walking to a doctor, and let's say he happens to be about 40 stone, and he just happens to love deep fried Snickers, you know? And uh, he's just way into that kind of thing. And if it's deep fried, and if it just looks like a cork, he wants to eat it. And, and of course, his doctor, in love, has got to tell him, you know, listen, Jabba the Hut, you've got to get to this point. You're going to have to change your diet, or you're not going to make it to 30. Now, you could say, how dare you? Who do you think you are? But you went to the doctor for that purpose. Now, the, you wouldn't respect a doctor that if you were dying, would look at you and go, yep, you're fine, and out you go. And the reason I say that is we come in there at times what we really want. We want God to affirm the things that are right. When you're doing something right, we want Scripture to look and say, hey, by the way, well done. That's, a, that's the right way to handle it. But then on the other hand of it, we do want God to be really honest with us because we wouldn't respect him if he wasn't. And if God were just to kind of pussyfoot around, if you will, and just kind of dance around something, it's like, just give it to me simple and hard. Well, God does that, and he certainly records people who, by the way, God actually lauds as being someone after his own heart, for instance, with David. He's a passionate guy. He's a man's man. He's, I mean, we, we see a guy that writes over 70 psalms, and I don't know, maybe it's because of our music culture, but we sort of assume that he's sort of effeminate and bouncing around in tights and, and that kind of thing, and yet... This is a guy who people were writing songs about that would say David has slain his tens of thousands. And it, it's just hard for me to picture like Freddie Mercury, Mercury whipping down a whole bunch of guys on the battlefield. And the only reason I say that is this was a, this was a man's man with a lot of passion, with a lot of, but that passion could also get him in a lot of trouble. And certainly that's been the case. As we pick it up in in Matthew, I'm sorry, in 1st, 2nd Samuel 12, I should get to where in the world I'm supposed to be. We need to see the back verse to that. And you'll see that in your handouts, if you will. Understand, it told us in the last chapter, it was the time when the kings go out to battle. And that immediately is the setting God gave us in chapter 11. Because it was the time when the kings go out to battle and God says, but David wasn't out in battle. Well, he was in a different kind of battle, and it was unfortunately when he was going to lose in. David was in his palace. And basically, David was in a situation that looked semblant to a rap video. I mean, he, was, he had the bling bling, he had all the comfort. In always he was as comfortable as a king could be 3,000 years ago. But that was his danger. And he sees a woman bathing on a roof. We, tell, we, we read that she had just been passed through ceremonial impurity. In other words, if you'll pardon me for saying, she had just been through her cycle, uh, and her period, however you want to put that, and she's bathing as a result of that. Uh, and David, David sees her, and he tells his servants, get her for me. Who is she? Who dat? Now, that's interesting because you think David would know. Now, you know, without due respect, I'm assuming he hasn't seen her naked before, so that's a different thing. But they tell her, now look it, and they give him three bits of information about the girl. First of all, her name, Batsheva. Batsheva means the daughter of a covenant. That should slow you down, if nothing else. And by the way, she happens to be the granddaughter of your chief counselor. Strike two. That should slow you down way, if, if that doesn't stop you. Oh, by the way, third thing. She happens to be the wife of your bodyguard, one of your bodyguards. Any man in his right mind at a moment like that would go, okay, this is definitely stop time, but not for him. And I'm going to be honest with you, and I'm trying to be really as direct as I can without being crude. Man, when men get like, to that point where they really feel like they need to have someone, they lose their mind. They'll give up Anything. To have something that they think they need to have and they won't count the cost now ladies maybe that's true with you too but i can tell you in a situation like this there is no there is not one percent of reason being added to the formula that david is conjuring up here and mixing the soup of what he's going to do he's all desire at this moment and this man is a hundred percent passion and no reason whatsoever and yet he's still a man after God's own heart, and you'd say, "Well, how is that possible?" It's possible because he's human. And it's important to note for every one of us that God knows how He wired you. The issue is not well the issue is not whether or not you're susceptible to falling. The issue is what you want to choose to do with it. There are certain people I know, and I would call them atom splitters. I mean, you could just smell greatness on them. You just know that given any space, they're going to change the world. The issue isn't whether they're going to split an atom. The question is, are they going to use it to heat homes or blow up houses? The only difference is your application. And some of you, man, you are so gifted. And you are so blessed. Some of you, you're socially magnetic. People are drawn to you. Some of you, you're brilliant. You can write code or you can, you can posthumize thoughts in your head that are books that other people couldn't get if you wrote it down. The issue is not whether you're gifted. The issue is not whether you have affinity. The question is, what are you going to do with it? Most of the time, David seems to do good things with it, but this is not one of those moments. And God records it simple and plain. And what he tells us in the text was, by the end of it all, he takes the girl, he sleeps with her, and she turns out pregnant. And play that out, that takes a couple of months. It isn't like they've got kind of, this, she can pop to boots and get something. I mean, she clearly, it takes a while for her to realize, uh-oh, David. You know? and, then David's got a, and now David's got a, now I want you, want you to realize how that plays out 3,000 years ago would play out very differently than it would today. And in the simplest sense, David is looking for the easiest way out. Now today, that would be very different. Clinics are involved in an easier way out today. Back then, David doesn't have a way to kill the child. And so David now thinks, well, I've got to try to get the husband back. And if I can get him to sort of you know, sleep with his wife, well, then let's just hope that they can think that the baby is his. And what he's trying to do, is the very thing Proverbs 28 tells us not to. And it says, Whoever seeks to cover up his sin will never prosper. But he who confesses and forsakes it will find mercy. And David is just like any of us who would do something really stupid. The natural inclination is, How do I cover it up? How do I pretend it didn't happen? How do I play it out so that it really wasn't what it was? Adam and Eve did that by trying to cover up their own bodies. Well, it turns out that the guy's too noble, so he won't sleep with his own wife. And and there's this weird conversation where the husband, this bodyguard, I remind you of David, his name is Uriah, and he looks at him and he's like, how in the world can I sleep with my wife where all of the men in battle are in battle? Which I don't even know what could go through David's mind at that moment when he looks and thinks, Dude, I did, and and I, it's just a weird thought that he's looking at this guy, and he's trying to get him to just step down a notch in his own nobility, and look at, you know you're in trouble when you want somebody else to backslide to feel better. David tries and takes round two with it, and what he does is he tries to get the guy drunk, he gets the guy drunk, and the guy's more noble drunk than David was, seemingly sober. And now David's got a real problem on his hands. This baby's going to come whether he likes it or not. And this guy's clearly going to know it wasn't his. So what does David do? David sends a note and he trusts him. The guy is so noble, he can send the guy's own death note. And he knows the guy won't open it up and read it. So he's like, here you go. It's a signed letter. It's a sealed letter. Don't look at it and give this to Joab, the commander of the army. So what happens? The guy runs and he hands the, and, and Joab reads the letter, and the letter says, "I want you to get to the hottest part of battle. Go forward, bring Uriah with him, with you, and then everyone take a step back and let this guy get drilled. David has just ordered his murder." And you know what the sad part is, Uriah died simply because he was noble. And so then she she mourns for her husband and that's at the end of 2nd Samuel 11 do you have that there verses 26 and 27 it says then the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah her husband was dead she mourned for her husband and it said but when the morning was over David sent and brought her to his house she became his wife and bore him a son but the thing that David had done displeased the Lord it is important to note as we begin chapter 12 David we would think at this moment from a From a social perspective, people actually think david 's gotten away with it i mean david 's had servants. I remind you David sent servants together, so david didn 't just sort of dress up in a ball cap and a pair. Of, of converse, and sort of flip out somewhere so no one can see him. I mean, I'm David wouldn't have worn that normally. But David actually had other people involved in this whole thing. He brought this girl in, and now look at how nice of a guy he looks. This poor pregnant widow, the poor husband died. She must be horrible. How sweet it was that David took her and married her so that she was making, you know, always made sure she was taken care of. Imagine the awards people wouldn't want to give her. Imagine the spin would happen. And in the news, oh, super kind king taking this. And everybody's going, yeah, that was really great, king. Wow, you are so sweet and sensitive. And God's like, no. Big bag of nope from God. And that takes us to chapter 12. It says, then the Lord sent Nathan to David. Do you see that in the text? And he came and he spoke to him. We start with this. Nathan's God's mouthpiece to David. He was introduced in Second Samuel 7. Because David wanted to build God a house, and Nathan thought that was a great idea. But unfortunately, Nathan didn't take the moment to try to discern the difference between David's well intentions and God's will intended. So, this is Nathan's second visit. And he's going to nail it this time. And we really, to be honest, after this chapter, won't see him for the rest of the book. We won't see him until 1 Kings 1, the next book, first chapter, when one of David's sons tries to take the kingdom from him. And unfortunately, Nathan isn't invited to the party. So here Nathan is going fishing into the pond of David's conscience without David even knowing it. So Nathan shows up to David, and he came to him, and he gives him this parable. Now I remind you, David is the Supreme Court judge at the moment. So when Nathan kind of throws the situation out, I'm under the impression David actually thinks he's hearing a genuine case. Well he is, he just doesn't know it's his own. And here it is. Nathaniel says, or Nathan says, There were two men in one city, one rich and one poor. The rich man had exceedingly many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb. That's a little female lamb, which he had bought and nourished. And it grew up together with him and his children, and it ate of his own food, drank from his own cup, it lay in his bosom, and it was like a daughter to him. And a traveler came to the rich man, who refused to take from his own flock and from his own herd to prepare one for the wayfaring man who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Now, David's anger was greatly aroused against the man, and he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this shall surely die, and he shall restore fourfold for the lamb, because he did this thing, and because he had no pity. So Nathan said to David, Well, you demand. man. Here's the situation. Nathan is shown up to David, David has no idea that he's being set up. And Nathan goes, I really need you to pass judgment on something here, Kingy. Shoot. Well, first of all, you need to know there are... How many characters are listed in this particular story? There are three. I mean, if we're going to not call the lamb one. But it contrasts two men, right? So let's play this out for a second. I need two guys. Let me do this. This is going to be rough. No matter who it is, I'm going to assume like I'm taking that one. So I'm going to have to use Daniel. I'm going to have to use you guys. You guys may have to forgive me. And you do, but it's just going to be a little easy with these guys. I mean, if you like, you just meet me and I do this, you may never come back. I have a feeling these guys come back. So. I'll be honest with you. I'd be tempted to make you the little ewe lamb. Sorry, just kidding, just kidding. Okay, so he says, here's the situation I need you to pass judgment on. Starts with the fact that there was this king, this guy. And this guy had so much. He had an abundance of everything. He was living large. He had no shortage of anything. If he wanted it, he snapped his fingers, he had it. If it was instant, if there was a way that he wanted it, it doesn't matter whether it was the Bentley or the gold-plated microwave, the boy was getting it. He had the blang bang, any way the guy wanted. And strangely enough, they were neighbors, because in the same city there was another guy. And this other poor sap, by the way, we really don't read about it, if a, if we don't even have a name, what we read is the guy's poor. So on one side of it, the guy's living in Chelsea, He's got a ride. I mean, anytime he wants, he rings a bell, and somebody comes, and they pick him up and carry him to the limo. And at that point, he gets the comfort. He makes sure that it's always at 21 degrees, 21 and a half degrees. And there it is. His drink is cooled, and he's already ready. Everything's good for him. But on the other side of town, or if you will, just down the block, and council housing, happens to be a guy who ain't got nothing. Poor bruv. Well, he actually has one thing. What we read in the beginning is he's got nothing but this lamb, this little sheepy. Now, I want to remind you, David, before he was a king, what was he? Do you remember? He was a shepherd. And because he was a shepherd, understand, he understands that there's a relationship you have with sheep. You don't normally have a relationship with a lot of animals you herd. But to be honest... You go to the Middle East even to this day and you tell them you have a pet dog, that's going to sound real funky to most of them. Because dogs are kind of well, they're kind of stray animals that are for the most part carrying a lot of... They're like giant rats to a lot of people in other countries. And you're like, no, you don't understand the thing sleeps on my bed with me. I give him a name. And, you know, and they would look at you and go, what, what's wrong with you? you? know. And the reason I say that is we read this about a sheep and we think this is kind of weird. But it's not weird for them because the thing about a shepherd is he, the, with sheep is you have to have a relationship with every sheep because sheep are very different and they have very pronounced personalities. And you need to know... For certain ones, your tone is going to freak them out. And for others, if you don't give them that tone, they ain't going anywhere. A lot like children. And so, with that in mind, when when Nathan's laying out this story for David, he's telling that he doesn't say ox. He doesn't say cow. He doesn't say, by the way, the guy had a whole bunch of rhinoceros. He had one sheep, and David understood that. So here's his story. Sooner or later, somewhere in it, the guy that has everything... And there's a guy that has a little lamb. Daniel had a little lamb. And ultimately what we read is there was a traveler. The traveler didn't stop by. Why in the world would he go over to where Daniel is? First of all, he'd probably get rolled. And then second of all, he'd wind up without anything. But he comes and he goes to visit, you know, he comes to visit the rich man. And as he comes to visit the rich man the way that it's listed is is that the rich man makes a conscious choice and the conscious choice is that he has no interest in giving anything of his own to this guy to show proper hospitality, but instead, which tells me that they had to be close enough neighbors for him to notice that the guy had that sheep in the first place. And so, no matter what Daniel called it, Hugo calls that thing lamb chops. So, what happens is, sooner or later, and it says he called and he had, in essence, had servants go, and they had to steal the sheep. Let's be honest. They had to steal the sheep. Now, I remind you, as far as we read in the story, this thing was close to Daniel. I mean, he, it ate from his bowl, still weird. It slept in his bosom, still weird. But for some of you, you can't even go to sleep unless your dog's like right there and your arms wrapped around it. Now, you may die single for it, but at least you're happy for the most. Now, now, with all due respect, now, with that in mind, Daniel's got this sheep. And it tells us, by the way, that it was raised with his kids, which tells us that he had the sheep longer than his children. And somewhere in it, what that means is the kids, all they ever knew was that sheep. That's a weird thought in that sense. I mean, how intimate and how... And and again, to the pure, all things are pure. Nothing funky or weird about this. This is a sweet situation. It's a pure and a sweet situation. So pure and so sweet... David goes mental when he says, and the guy went and he killed him. Now, understand what he is. Had, he had to steal that thing from him. And then not only did he have to steal that thing from him, he had to kill that thing. And then not only did he have to kill that thing, he killed that thing. And then he handed it over to the traveler. Does that make sense? So, ultimately, by the time we're done, this guy who has everything except the one thing over there that that guy had takes the one thing over there now go ahead and have a seat thanks guys now ultimately david goes mental and it's interesting because in this story and it tells us he bought it he nourished it it grew with his kids they supped together they were close it was precious like one of his children and somewhere in this you had this thing and david now flips out and he goes The full extent of the law needs to come down on this guy. Now, it's interesting, because I'll be honest with you, we seem to have two pairs of spectacles. The pair that we keep at home when we look at our own sin that makes everything smaller, and the pair we wear when we look at everybody else's that makes it bigger. And it is amazing how my sin looks so much worse on you than on me. And it's like, for me, it's just a little something, but for you, it's a huge deal like, well, you're clearly a filthy, rotten pig, if that's what you're thinking. Um, not that I thought that this morning. And that becomes the point here. Now, please hear me in this. Because as David, we read, by the way, his anger was aroused. Literally, his nostrils flared. He was like, and he turned kind of in, you know, green, his shirt ripped open. He's like, Bleh. and in that, then he says two things. First of all, you better kill that guy. And I remind you, at this point, this is a king's command. So that means this is his verdict. You've got to kill that guy, and he needs to restore fourfold. Now, I don't know about you, but my thought is maybe he should restore fourfold before they kill him. Because once you're dead, how in the world are you going to restore fourfold? But if I had to restore fourfold and then they killed me, I'd restore to you threefold and wait on that last one. Because I know that once I'm done, they're going to kill me. Now, he, now, why in the world does he give us that? Because it goes all the way back to the book of Exodus, chapter 22. And listen to this. It says in Exodus 22, verse 1, If a man steals an ox or a sheep and slaughters it or sells it, he shall restore five times for the oxen, five oxen for the oxen he stole, or four sheep for the sheep. Now, let's face it. Nathan could have played the ox thing, and that would have been restoring fivefold. But then also David was a shepherd. And it says in the next verse, if the thief is found breaking in at night, and he's struck and he's he's dead for it, there'll be no guilt of bloodshed. But if he breaks in during the day, you'll be guilty if you kill him because you could go get your neighbors is the whole point of it. And it says, but he shall make full restitution regardless if he has nothing, then he shall be sold for his theft. So the full length of the law, the hardest it could be, you know, like when a judge looks and he's like, what do we give you? We can give you probation. We can sort of, you know, what do we call that? Sort of wait on your sentence or the maximum fine, the maximum punishment is this. David throws the book at this guy that he doesn't realize he's sworn it at himself and he's like look at so this is what you need to do you need to kill the guy because clearly the guy did this at night because who after all would steal a sheep otherwise and he needs to restore fourfold because that's the maximum now think about if the if england think about if the uk played at least this part out someone stole for you and they were required to, re- to restore to you fourfold one of the best things that could ever happen to you is that you were burgled let's be honest He'd be like, wow, dang it, someone stole you know my car, but I'm going to get four of them by the time we're done. I mean, that wouldn't be as bad. You wouldn't feel as much like a victim. Nonetheless, David is wigging out now in this, and understand this is where it goes. Now, understand, Nathan knows when he's being sent that he's setting David up, but David is playing into this thing so solid. Now, listen, this whole thing, is exactly how it plays out in the, in the Gospels. It tells us for what it's worth in James chapter 2, verse 13, not a Gospel, but a, an epistle afterwards, that judgment without mercy will go to him who shows no mercy, but mercy try himself for judgment. If you remember the story in Luke 19, there was a chief tax collector. He wasn't just a tax collector. He was the boss of the tax collectors. And we know him as a wee little man. So his name was, thank you, Zacchaeus. And when we read, as Zacchaeus then, Jesus, of course, he climbs up the sycamore trees up there. Hey, and Jesus is like, hey, I'm coming to your house tonight. And everyone freaks out. And he is so moved by it, he says this. Listen, Zacchaeus says, Lord, look, Lord, I give half of my goods to the poor. And if I have taken anything from anyone I, by false accusation, I will restore fourfold. Or literally, I do at this moment restore fourfold. What is he doing? He is paying back the full extent of the law. What shows us, Jesus says salvation's come to this house today. And what you see was that he's no longer a thief. And when is a thief not a thief? Not when he stops stealing. To be honest, when he starts giving. It tells us he who steals, let him steal no more, but rather let him work with his hands that he would have something to give. I kind of like that. In this situation, David's being set up. He's like, so David, let me, let me roll the situation out to you. What do you think you should do? And David says, we should throw the book at this guy. He needs to restore fourfold, and he should die. Nathan looks at him in verse 7, and he says, you're the man. Thus says the Lord God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you from the hand of Saul. That was his predecessor who wanted him dead. I give you your master's house and your master's wives and your keeping. Now notice your master's wives. This was not God saying, I gave you a bunch of wives and God was endorsing polygamy. They were not for David's marrying, but for David's keeping. Saul had wives that apparently were given to David to watch over. This was not for David to sleep with. He's like, now understand when a king, when a new family or a new dynasty takes over an old dynasty, the old dynasty has the possibility of rising up again by family. So what happens is if the sons die, and of course that was the case with Saul's family, what you find is you have concubines and wives that tend to remarry and then they try to raise up somebody against the new king. So for David to be over that, what God said is, I gave you a kingdom that was indisputable and no one was going to get it back. It wasn't saying, I just gave you a bunch of women for you to go and do your, whatever you wanted with them. I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your keeping And I gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if that had been too little, I would have given you so much more. James 1.16 says, Don't be deceived, brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and comes down from above from the Father of lights in whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. He says, listen, If it's a good gift, it only comes from one place, and that's the Father of heavenly lights in whom there's no shadow of turning. It tells us for what it's worth in Psalm 84 that no good gift will he keep from those who walk uprightly. James says, you know you have not because you ask not. And when you ask, you don't have because you really aren't interested in getting it for any purpose but your own selfish ambition. Understand, if you don't have it, and you've asked God for it. It's not good. It's just that simple. Now, that doesn't mean it could be good later, it just means it wouldn't be good now. I have a 13 year old, and some of you know that, and my 13 year old's quite a funny character. The other day, we were, I can't even remember where in the world we were, oh, we were at an auction trying to get something for a. Uh, for our house to put tea in. And while we were there, she's drawing and she draws this dancing man. Imagine she's 13. And then above it, in balloon letters, she writes the word murder. And I'm like looking at her going, what in the world are they doing? She's like, it's Sherlock. It's actually, but the people on the other side of her started scooting away from her. The moment they're kind of like, what in the world? That's my daughter. Now she could, now if right now at 13, I wanted to hand her a nail gun. Everyone who knows her knows that would be a really bad idea. I have a feeling she might get trigger-happy and see how well this thing works. Now, she may someday wake up and want to be a roofer or a finishing carpenter, for which such a tool would be a great thing. But right now, it's not so good. And the reason I say that is, is that maybe right now the reason you don't have it is because it's just not good right now. Now, on the other side of it, there are certain things that aren't good ever that might be okay for someone else. Liver. For whatever reason, liver makes me sick. There you go. Welcome to, the, welcome to my world. Now, for you, you might love liver. Now, for me, there's a part of my, even in my mind, that thinks it filters toxins. That's kind of a weird thought to eat that. But... It's an involuntary response. It is never going to be a good thing for me to go and get sick in front of you. I, don't, I can't see that being a really great idea. Not for you. You might love it and good on you. And the reason I say that is is there are certain things that just might not be good for you. My father is allergic to penicillin. That would be a really bad idea to give it to him. I have no problem with it. Now, I have no problem with it administered to me. I'd have a problem administered to him. But then there are other things that are universally bad all the way around. Grabbing a pickaxe and striking yourself in the face with it repeatedly is bad for any human being. Regardless of whether you don't like your face or you put your makeup on wrong or you've had a bad hair day, it's still a bad thing universally. Regardless of that, who knows? There are certain things. I mean, there's a girl that we knew. She, imagine this, ladies, she would get migraines from eating chocolate. She's still a Christian, even though she thought God had punished her. She's still, And the only reason I say that is, is that it took her quite a while to discover why in the world she would get these migraines. But there was somebody that was equipped and ready for the purpose of being able to decipher that information. Here's the unique thing about all of this. Your heavenly father, God in heaven, knows exactly what's good for you and what's not. And he knows what to give you and when to give you and how much to give you. And he knows when not to. And what God is saying to David is something we all need to take to heart. And that is, listen, I I give you so much more in abundance than you actually even need. And if you needed more, no doubt I would give it. So why in the world are you actually looking elsewhere? What do you really think you're going to get that God can't give that somehow is going to be good? Think that through. I mean, if God isn't giving it to you and you're asking him for it, you need to trust him that he knows it's not good right now. But what's interesting is God's not a God of Nazis. He's a God of instead of, And in such a situation, often God will fill this space first and foremost with him. And if you can't let him fill those base things in your heart, nobody else is going to be able to fill it if if you won't let God do it and it's built for him, because God's infinite, and if he built that space for him, nothing else is infinite to fill the space. In our situation here, Nathan is now landing this story with David, and he tells him, Look at David, do you realize who you are in this story? You're the guy that had everything but the little lamb. Now hear me on this, because in the book of Job chapter one, all of the angels of God present themselves to God, and in that God gets in a, God gets in a conversation with Satan, and as God gets into a conversation with Satan, he's like, "Hey, so what's up, buddy?" Well, buddy's probably not the term he would use. What's up? And, and Satan says, You know, I've been kind of wandering around, wayfaring around. I've been traveling around, looking around at everyone. He's a traveler. And I think this is interesting. Imagine the situation. You have this guy who had everything, and a visitor comes. And this visitor, by the way,. In this situation, Hugo had the opportunity to say yes or no to let this guy in. Now, whether you want to put that as saying or whether you want to just put it as temptation, sooner or later something comes knocking at your door and you kind of know if that thing's going to get lit in, it's going to cost you something. And I know the moment I open up that door to this thing, something's going to have to pay for it. So in this particular situation, notice in this situation that he has less care for the guy that lived next door to him or wherever within his sight, than he did the care, the person he let in. So much so that he was willing to take from the guy that had his only one thing and then kill it and give it to the traveler. He goes, David, don't you even see this was your life? Look at how you had everything, but you looked at this one thing and what was the traveler? What was the traveler that came to David? Well, it was temptation one way or another, whether you want to personify it through the enemy or whether you just want to put it as temptation as an idea. Either way, one thing's for sure is that this thing came knocking and David chose to let it in. But when he let this thing in, whether it be the enemy's influence through his counsel or whether it simply be the temptation that the enemy would throw anyways, David took this thing and he looked and he says, Whoa, David is on his roof and he looks and he sees this girl bathing and he hears on his heart. How many times we're flipping through the internet we're talking to someone. We see something we know we shouldn't have. Or we're in a situation where we know if we say yes, we're going to go to some place we shouldn't be to do something we're going to regret later. But we don't even think that. At that moment, what happens is there's this opportunity in front of me and there's this that says you need to, you need to let that in. And I want to say right now as your friend, as well as pastor, that it's at that moment you've got to know it's going to cost you. And for David, his life will never be the same again. It will never be the same again. It will never be the same again. He will never be looked at the same by the people that he involved in this situation. Even his relationship with Joab is going to radically change because of this situation. The commander of his army. Imagine what it would be like to look at Bathsheba, the girl. Imagine what it would be like to look at those servants you know you let into this situation. And for the rest of David's life, and here's the interesting thing, as we start next week going through the fallout of this, you need to recognize David is actually going to pay fourfold. Four different children are going to wind up dying as a result of this. Now, is that because God is punishing David by killing his kids? No, David just set the thing in motion. If right now I stood at that door and there was a guy that was there with a huge, with a machete. And I, knowing they had a machete, let them in, welcomed them and said, have at the people in the room and you were killed for it. Was that God punishing you or punishing me for that? That was my stupidity that earned that. And David has opened the door through this situation. To really, now I remind you, she has several kids that are right about teenage right now. What would it be like for them to see the situation? Do you think they're out in battle? I don't think so. They're princes living large. And they're like, wow, hey, dad, so who was that girl? Wow, she's pregnant, dad. Oh, you married her. Come on. 13-year-olds, 15-year-olds, we're pretty quick to the take at that age, aren't we? To kind of note that, by the way, we may not get a lot of things, but that's the one thing you seem to get at that age. Hmm. Dad brought that girl in, huh? So here are the questions that start getting asked of David in verse 9. Why have you despised the commandment of the Lord? It's like, David, you were supposed to be, according to Deuteronomy 13, you were supposed to be writing a copy of God's Word, grabbing a hold of it with your heart. You were a man after God's own heart. And God tells us, look, at if you really love me, keep my commandments. Do what I say. And yet in this, look at you, you're despising the commandments of God to do this. Because in other words, you know that God said this was wrong. And it doesn't matter how many internet websites are out there saying that what God said is not what He meant. The bottom line is, you know intrinsically that it's wrong. God made it clear in his word, and no matter how you want to twist it and torture it, you know that the scripture makes really clear this is wrong, and let every other man decide otherwise. His word doesn't change, and this is why my heart as a pastor is to get you to fall in love with the word of God, because no matter where anyone wants to go with it, if you read God's word and no says no, no should, no should mean no. Why have you despised the commandment of the Lord and done evil in his sight? You've killed Uriah the Hittite with the sword. You've taken his wife to be your wife. And notice, by the way, what God is doing at this point is he is popping the blister of David's soul to let him know that the pressure he's been experiencing all this time, and it's been more more than likely over a year since the original event took place. He's like, I'm going to lay it all out for you to realize. This is all. Now, why is God going to do that? Because what we're going to find out in a moment is that God's going to put away the sin and for God to list them here only shows you that there wasn't a sin that God left behind. Hear that again. The reason God laid those things out is for you to know that there wasn't a sin that God left behind for David to still deal with. That doesn't mean the ramifications, repercussions aren't going to come out. But the sin itself is going to be dealt with. You know, God really doesn't have a problem showing you your sin, but He really wants you to hate it as much as He does. And do you know why he hates it? Because it kills you. That's why. Some of you know, when I was 11, my mother passed away from, from cancer. She, she, I never knew her healthy. My older brothers and sister, they knew her healthy. Because they knew her vibrant. She was basically like a thin Marilyn Monroe. Everybody loved my mother. But I knew the girl that was still feisty and still had all the fire and fight. But was eroding away. I mean, she was a skeleton of a woman I was helping carry from room to room at age nine. That was what I knew of my mother. Now, the reason I hated cancer and still don't, and the reason I still hate cancer is because I saw what it did to someone I love. If I didn't love my mother, I'd be indifferent about cancer. Does that make sense? You know why God hates sin? Because spiritually, it's cancer. And God wouldn't hate sin if he didn't love you. But because he loves you, he hates what kills you. And he hates what interferes in your relationship with him. It's that simple. So as God lays out all of these sins before him, he's going to go for the kill in verse 10. Therefore the sword, all, I mean, since you, it said you've taken his wife to be your wife, You've killed him with the sword of the people of Ammon. And then verse 10, Now therefore the sword will not depart from your house, but because you've despised what? In verse 10, God's like, you despise me. Now understand, this isn't God being angry. This is God being hurt. This is God grieving. He's like, David, you are after my heart. David, you wanted to be where I am. You wanted to build a house where we could just be together for eternity. And now, look at you. You acted in a way that totally, it was an act of hatred against me. Now, can two people be in love and still do something that's an act of hatred towards each other? I've seen it on more than one occasion. Does it make them unmarried? No, but they certainly need to deal with it when God looks at this, he's like, you realize when you were doing this, you were acting like you hate me. You know, we don't even realize that God is that involved in our lives. And not only that God is that involved in our life, that he's that emotionally involved in our lives. I mean, if I knew that my wife were watching and I were like punching myself in the face in front of her, I could do that despite her because I know that she loves me. No matter how I want to treat myself in that, you could see her saying, you know, in doing that, you acted like you hate me. And understand, the reason God is doing this with David is he's sequestering that shepherd guy that 15, 20 years ago, 30 years ago, just laid in a field and said, oh Lord, oh God, how majestic is your name in all the earth. When I consider the work of your fingers, the sun and the moon and the stars that you've made, I start to go, wow, who am I? You you made me a little lower than the angels and yet you gave me all this authority. Oh God, you are so awesome. I think there are times where God just kind of goes, remember that time when you were in love with me? like when he speaks to the church in Ephesus, and he's like, you know, you do all of these really cool Christianese things, but you left your first love. He goes, you know, you're, you're still doing stuff. But where's the love? And when God's speaking to David here, he's going, listen, please, you despise me in this. Because you've taken this wife of Uriah, Uriah the Hittite, to be your wife. So thus says the Lord, verse 11, Behold, I will raise up adversary between you and your own house. I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor. And you will lie with your wives in the sight of the sun. For in, You did this in secrecy or secretly. But I will do this thing before all Israel, before the sun. He's like, look it again. You want to try to cover this thing up. It's gonna blow up sooner or later. The lie is gonna make its way to surface. And we've seen people that have somehow kind of, you know, well, your sin's really horrible, but my little thing that's really huge, it's really nothing and you need to just deal with it and put it away. And and God's like, Look no matter how you wanna lay this thing out and paint it whatever way you want to, the truth is gonna make its way to surface because your sin has a way of finding you out. And we read, by the way, for what it's worth, don't be deceived. God's not mocked. Whatever a man sows, he's going to reap. Let's face it, you plant apple seeds, you're not going to get a pear tree out of it. No matter what you do to it. And he tells us, if we sow to the flesh, we're going to reap corruption. Destruction is the word in essence. But he who sows to the Spirit, well, by the Spirit, or in the Spirit, of the Spirit, reap everlasting life. So David now has to respond. And the way that he responds is fundamental. Because the way that David responds at a moment like this, what would be our natural tendency? Would our natural tendency be to just call well, you don't understand how hard it's been. And you know what? Check the girl, fine. Check her, she fine. And what was she doing bathing on the roof? Notice God's like, don't give me any of your circumstances. Don't try to qualify this for me. Are you willing to agree with me that this is sin? Don't just go, well, you don't understand. God's like, imagine telling God he doesn't understand. God's like, oh, you're right. That's my defect. (laughs) Help me understand. God has no kryptonite. And David does what any man should do at a moment like this. Because I've sinned. I've sinned against the Lord. It was like, you know, you're right, and I'm wrong. Nathan said to David, the Lord has put away your sin, and you shall not die. And the way that it's worded, it appears as if God like God, was going, I was just waiting for you to agree with me it was sin, and the moment you do that, I'll put it away. But you want to tell me, you know, you don't understand I was hungry, I was tired, I was freaked out, as a time of the month, there's pressure going on. Now, those things may be contributive, but it doesn't allow us to actually call it what it is, which is wrong. Are those extenuating circumstances? Sure, and let's be honest, in the court of law, sometimes these things play out. But if we're going to be really honest with ourselves, nothing heals a relationship by playing those things into it. When you're wrong and you treat somebody wrongly, what they really need to know is you agree with them that it's wrong. By the way, the word for confession in the New Testament is homologamas. Homo means same. logamas or logos means reason or logic or understanding or word. And it's like the idea of a real confession is not sorry. Let's be honest. Here, we say that without, we, it's, an, it's sort of an involuntary response. I've watched some of you run into inanimate objects and say you're sorry to them. It's like, oh, sorry. Like, oh, you know, you know and, and the only reason I say that is it's a natural response for us now. But let's be honest, you know, you hurt someone and you look and go, sorry. What you're saying is, you know, stop being so moody about it. Get over it. There's no sense of wrong in that. But a real confession is I need to let you know you called this wrong and I agree with you. This is wrong. It is amazing how that starts to heal a relationship. And that's what God was looking for with David. David, you've been spending over a year pretending like this wasn't wrong. And he goes, look at. The Lord has put away your sin. You're not going to die. David, though that was your judgment, God's going to show you mercy. However, because of this deed, you have given great occasion for the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme Well, the child who was also born to you. He's, he's going to die. She'll surely die. Now look in. David, because he's a songwriter, we have this blessing to bring this around to close. Is that David writes songs? Because if you are a songwriter, you should write songs. Anyways, and, and in that what you get in a songwriter's a real songwriter in my opinion, is you get to learn the heart of an individual. Look at if I heard five songs you wrote and I don't think I know you any better, I'm gonna really question what kind of songs you're writing. And maybe what I'll know is maybe there isn't a lot of depth there and that's why I'm not getting anything. But the reason I say that is I want you to hear David and this because he writes two specific songs about this event. One, when he gets nailed by Nathan, by Nathan. And the second, the result of being told that God has actually forgiven him. So I'm going to actually ask this. I'm going to ask my two actors to come up. I'm going to ask them. To, and I have it here in front of you to make it. Come on up, you guys. I'm going to drop this. I'm going to drop the button. Yeah, why? What am I thinking? Okay. So let's do this. Daniel, if you would, would you be willing to read Psalm... The two of them, by the way, when you have them there, is Psalm 51 and then Psalm 32. And let me see if I can make sure you have that. So psalm 51 oh good he could do that you know so oh that's why it's in blue okay so Daniel would you read psalm 51 and I'll give you this
1: Psalm 51 verse 1 says this to the chief musician a psalm of David when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba have mercy upon me O God according to your loving kindness according to the multitude of your tender mercies blot out my transgressions and wash me you, you desire truth in the inward parts, and in the hidden part you will make me to know wisdom. And purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. And wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me hear joy and gladness, that the bones you have broken may rejoice. And hide your face from my sins, and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God. And renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence, and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and uphold me by your generous spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners shall be converted to you. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God, the God of my salvation, and my tongue shall sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth shall show forth your praise. For you do not desire sacrifice, or else I would give it. And you do not delight in burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. These, O God, you will not despise. Do good in your good pleasure to Zion. Build the walls of Jerusalem. Then you shall be pleased with the sacrifices of righteousness, with burnt offering and whole burnt offering. Then they shall offer bulls on your altar.
0: In the situation here, I want to point out one quick thing, and then I'm going to have Hugo read. And I don't know if you'll be able to just, it'll just be the, the blue. In Deuteronomy 6, it tells us we're to love the Lord with all of our heart, our soul, and our strength. God tells us that you're made up of different parts. And the reason I say that is what sin does to you is it affects every part of who you are. It affects your heart, your emotional state. It suffers at unrepentant sin. The soul, your mental state, suffers at unrepentant sin, and you lose your vitality. But also your strength, it takes a physical toll on you. And what God makes really clear is, and you want to live in a place where you're fighting the God who created you, and you want to take these things and not call them wrong, I want to warn you, there isn't a part of you that isn't going to suffer for it. And <clears throat> The reason I say that is, God wants to do so much more than just kind of say, well, let's just kind of overlook this. He wants to put it out, he wants to remove the cancer from you, because what he really wants is for you to thrive. Well, with that, I want you to realize that as we look at this. And I just want to say that as David now shows us the response to God putting away his sin now, He puts out, basically, there'll be three Selahs, which is a moment of musical break for you to think about what's just been said. And the first one speaks, if you will, about retribution. The second speaks about repentance. And the third speaks about restoration. So listen to David's state. And I remind you, that's your heart, that's your emotional state, that's your soul, it's your mental state, and it's your strength, your physical strength. Listen how those three things suffered before God dealt with this. Here we go. Psalm 32.
2: Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. When I kept silent, my bones grew old, through my groaning all the day long. For then night, your, your hand was heavy upon me, my vitality. Was turned into the jaw the draw, the draw of summer, Selah. I acknowledge my sin to you, and my iniquity I have not hidden. I said, I will confess my trans- transgression to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin, Selah. For this cause, everyone who is, who is godly shall pray to you in a time when you may be found, surely in a flood. Of great waters, they shall not come near him. You are my hidden place. You shall preserve me from trouble. You shall surround me with songs of deliverance. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will guide you with my eye. Do not be like the horse or like the mule, which have no understanding, which must be harnessed, With bit and breeder, else they will not come near you. Many sorrows shall be, shall be to the wicked. But he who trusts in the Lord, mercy shall surround him. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, you righteous, and shout for joy,
0: all you upright in heart. Look at the difference. David starts the first psalm with God. Please go ahead and have mercy, thanks guys. God, please have mercy on me. Now again, I remind you, mercy is not getting what you deserve. David knew that he deserved the punishment that even David himself offered in judgment to the guy that he thought in the story that just didn't realize it was him. And he's like, God, please have mercy on me. He goes that the bones you have broken could rejoice. But did you notice in this story or in this psalm? I'm sorry, this song. He says in verse three, when I kept silent. In this time, when, okay, I married the girl at this point, she's had her baby, everyone thinks it's cool. He said, My bones grew old. That is that physical sake. If it was his bones, his groans, and his moans. His bones grew old, then he groaned. That was his emotional state. He was so discordant in his own heart that he would groan over it. And then he said, His vitality, le is the word, it means. To be, his freshness was turned into the drought of summer. He just dried up as a human being. And that, if you will, was his soul. It's like his mind was dry. His heart was just completely torn apart. And his physical strength was just shot. And the reason I say that is, is that when God came to, to deal with David's sin, he didn't just come to push it in his face. God came to rescue David. And I want you to realize God has come to rescue you today. He doesn't just kind of go, well, let's not deal with that sin. First of all, God wants you to call sin what it is. But then when you call sin what it is, understand God's like, how about I punish it for you? And that's the whole story of Jesus. Jesus dying on the cross shows that the sin was paid for. And his resurrection from the dead shows that it was enough. You see, laying your sin at the cross says, God, you already punished this. But the resurrection says, I have a whole new life now. A life that no longer has to carry the burden of those things anymore. So I want to end with this, and then we pray. In First John 1, 8, 9, and 10, it says this. And there's three things you could do with sin. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. That's one option. You could say, I don't know, sin doesn't really, doesn't exist. God's like, well, then you've lied to yourself. Congratulations. In verse 10, the one on the other side, it says if we confess, if we say that we have not sinned. Well, there is sin, I just haven't done it. It says we make God out to be a liar and his word has no place in us. But the one in between says if we confess our sin. Remember that homologamas? In other words, I'm willing to admit with God it's exactly what he says it is. He says he's faithful and just to forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And this is the choice we have today. You go, I didn't come here to hear about sin. But as your friend, like a doctor, I'm here to let you know, if you have cancer, I want to tell you, especially if in my pocket is the cure, and I'm here to tell you Jesus is the cure to the guilt that you've been carrying like a backpack of rocks. And you try to cover it up and you try to look cool over it and you build a whole personality around it. But God's like, why don't you just lay it down today? You could say that it's not sin. You could say you're not doing it or you could just come clean, and I am so faithful, that means you can trust me, and I'm just, I have a right to do this, that I have, can forgive you. Literally, the word means to remove and abandon, and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. In other words, to make it as if you never even did it in the first place. Well, that's up to you. That's the decision you got to make, not me. My decision's made up. Would you pray with me? God, I want to thank you so much for this text. Lord, no doubt it's heavy. And Lord, I know that as we start to see the fallout in time to come, we're going to see a a very different David. Lord, I recognize even right now, in this room there are people with passions. There are people with drives and desires. And it isn't that the passion is the sin or the drive is the sin, it's what we choose to apply it, where we choose to apply it. The appetite that we have, the appetites for each of them, you have a menu and a set time. And if you don't give it, it's not good. So I pray right now for whatever is eating away at our souls, whatever has in essence dried our vitality, the drought of summer. Whatever has caused that groaning in our own beings, regardless of whether everyone else thinks it's cool or not, we know inside of us we're falling apart and we're eroding and we're decaying. Let your Holy Spirit right now bring those things to our mind and our hearts. We just want to lay before you and agree with you, they are wrong. And because they're wrong, we ask you to forgive us because you are faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Jesus, we do confess you died on the cross so that all of our sin could be punished. There's no other option out there where our sin actually gets punished instead of us being punished except this one. So I understand why, Jesus, you say you are the only way, truth and life, and you are the only way to the Father. Because any other way puts us with our sin in our own hands, standing before a perfect, righteous, holy God. But with you, Jesus, that is laid at the cross, and we can stand perfect and pure with the innocence of Jesus, with you, Jesus, upon us. And Jesus, I confess that you have paid for everything at the cross. You rose again to give me a new life. Let me walk in it now. Be my Lord. And lead me. So Father, here I am. I lay myself before you when I admit these things are wrong. Forgive me of them, I pray. In Jesus' name. And if you agree with that prayer, I ask you to say, Amen. Oh Lord, you've heard our prayers tonight. We recognize this is a heavy chapter, but I thank you, Lord, that you've taken us to the GP for the purpose of healing. So do that healing work now in each of us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.